Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I am your guest host this week again, Shani Reichman, the director of IPFAT at Israel Policy Forum. Our guest is our usual host, Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor with Israel Policy Forum. How are you doing this week, Neri? Hi, Shani. Um, very tired. Uh, week two of this uh, terrible war, but I do appreciate these podcasts slash therapy sessions uh, with you. So hopefully we'll be able to keep it up uh, during this uh, unfortunate time. Absolutely. We're speaking about almost two weeks after Hamas infiltrated Israel and committed some really unthinkable, unimaginable until it actually happened, terror attacks and massacres. On our last pod, we discussed the many fronts on which Israel may end up fighting this war, including, of course, in the north with Hezbollah. This past week, we have seen Israel move to a stronger offensive. Um, We've also seen the hostage count go up a bit. We saw Joe Biden's visit to Israel, which um, was actually quite unusual, and growing questions around the Arab world, around how they are going to be responding to that. So why don't we start by focusing very narrowly on Gaza? How would you characterize Israel's actions thus far since we last spoke? To what extent have they actually been successful in targeting Hamas terrorists? And have there been any moments where you felt they failed to achieve their goals or were very successful, factoring in the very delicate balance of waging a war while 200 of your own population are hostages in the enemy territory, and of course, recognizing um, that Gaza has a pretty densely populated area. And there's a lot of international pressure to limit the civilian casualties. So um, where are we at in terms of the Gaza offensive right now? Yeah, so uh, obviously a lot going on and a lot of uh, complex issues uh, on all fronts. So uh, we should we should unpack or try to unpack at least some of them. And by the way, uh, if anyone is interested, Israel Policy Forum um, had a really strong webinar last night, Wednesday night. What day is it today, Shani? Today's Thursday. So Wednesday night uh, with Amos Harel, uh, the military analyst and friend of this podcast. And he uh, he's... Uh, one of the best in the business, and he actually broke down uh, a lot of the military ins and outs um, from the Israeli point of view. So everyone should check that out. I think it's on, available on YouTube. But uh, yes, if we want to start with Gaza, uh, so Israel has been uh, waging an air campaign so far, uh, and now I think this is day 13 of the war. Uh, so it's been primarily from the air, maybe some artillery strikes, uh, maybe some naval strikes, limited raids uh, inside the Gaza Strip, but that's more for, I think, reconnaissance purposes. Uh, also uh, trying to find more information about uh, hostages uh, and retrieving uh, reportedly some bodies uh, from inside the Gaza periphery of Israelis taken uh, into into the Strip uh, on October 7th. So... Uh, the ground offensive that everyone has been waiting for has yet to materialize. Uh, there's uh, hundreds of thousands of Israeli forces uh, massed in southern Israel uh, as we speak. Uh, everyone imagines that they're preparing uh, for a ground offensive, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, so Israel is, uh, is striking Gaza and striking Gaza, we should say, very, very hard, uh, unlike anything we've, uh, we've seen before. Uh, because October 7th was unlike anything we've seen before as well. We should also keep in mind uh, how this all started uh, on that very uh, very tragic and very fateful Saturday morning. So 
that's in terms of the military uh, state of play. And uh, Israel has been successful in targeting some fairly senior Hamas terrorists. Uh, but as we've seen and know from previous rounds uh, between Hamas and Israel uh, in and from Gaza, uh, it's very difficult uh, to catch these guys uh, when they're very heavily hunkered down inside their uh, tunnels and underground cities that they've built uh, over the past decade plus underneath the Gaza Strip uh, and oftentimes underneath civilian buildings, hospitals. Uh, this is this is a known fact uh, that they're very well dug in. And so uh, airstrikes, uh, very difficult uh, to get at them when they're so heavily uh, uh, defended, uh, at least the Hamas members, uh, not so much the civilian population of Gaza, we should add. So uh, that's what we've seen in terms of uh, Israel v. Hamas in Gaza. And obviously, uh, you know, Hamas keeps up uh, rocket fire uh, into Israel. Uh, so a few times a day we get sirens even in central Israel, even north of Tel Aviv. Uh, if we get stopped uh, in the middle of this Shani, it's not because uh, I don't want to keep talking with you. It's uh, because there's a, a red alert and uh, rockets incoming on Tel Aviv um, and also at so- southern Israel. Uh, so they've kept up uh, their rocket fire, although we should say the rate of fire is a lot less than it was in the first three or four days of the war. Uh, that rate of fire is, was arguably unsustainable. I think they fired more rockets in the first three or four days of this war than in any previous Gaza campaign combined. So that was unsustainable. Um, the The impression is that they're uh, kind of uh, biding their time and conserving their rocket stock uh, for the ground offensive. And, you know, this this is arguably going to be a long war um, measured, measured not in days, uh, like in several previous Gaza conflicts, uh, but in weeks and, and potentially months, uh, depending on the the scale of the ground offensive. So that's in terms of, of Gaza. Uh, and, and also we should mention uh, the northern border uh, between Israel and Lebanon uh, is definitely not quiet. Uh, right now, there are uh, reports of rockets uh, fired on northern Israel. You've had um, cross-border, cross-border engagements, uh, infiltration attempts by Hezbollah and other Palestinian factions based in southern Lebanon. You've had uh, Hezbollah using its uh, preferred method of war, which is uh, anti-tank guided missiles uh, fired at Israeli uh, Israeli communities and also IDF forces on the northern border. Um, a lot of the... Uh, Northern communities, I think over 20 communities, uh, depth of about two to four kilometers uh, situated on the Lebanese border, have also been evacuated, uh, combined with a big chunk of southern Israel. So uh, I don't know if there's an official number out there, but hundreds of thousands of Israelis are themselves uh, internally displaced uh, inside Israel. Thanks for that analysis. Speaking, um, looking back to Gaza and thinking of the the fact that, of course, we know that there are many militants hiding with a lot of their weaponry beneath hospitals and such. There was a bit of a, a bit of confusion around the Al Ahli, I think it's called hospital, where first we heard that there was an Israeli airstrike in it. We heard that it killed 500 people. It was widely reported. Uh, soon after the IDF uh, denied this and claimed it was the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which was then verified by Joe Biden, um, who said it was quote, the other side. So what 
actually happened? What do we know? Um, and, and as a journalist, I have to ask you, why was the media so confused and unable to fact check this before reporting it based on what Hamas was saying, frankly? And why is it has it taken so long to turn this around? Um, it's being portrayed from my perspective as a he said, she said, when on one side you have a terror group claiming things and on the other side you have the U.S. and Israeli governments and military. So it seems to me that those are not equivalents, particularly shouldn't be seen as equivalents in American media. But I'm wondering what your read on is on this as a journalist and someone who's working in the space. Yeah, working in the space and I was working uh, covering uh, this very story. Uh, I think it happened uh, again. It's hard to know which day it is, but I think it happened late Tuesday where we saw reports of uh, an explosion at a, at a hospital inside Gaza and immediately uh, the Hamas run health ministry inside Gaza said uh, there were 500 people killed. Uh, that was an almost immediate report. And like you said, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, international media and the Arab media just ran with, with that report. So what do we know actually happened? We know for a fact there was an explosion, not in the hospital, but in a parking lot outside the hospital. Uh, and so the question is who, who is responsible? Uh, obviously Hamas and, uh, much of the Arab world believes it was an Israeli missile strike on on that parking lot next to the hospital uh the idf uh to its credit i suppose uh within a few hours of this report coming out had us all uh on a 1 1 30 a.m uh conference call with the preliminary investigation that they had conducted and they said you know uh there was no idf fire near or at that hospital during the time of the explosion or right before the explosion uh and basically said you know there's a good chance this was a uh, a misfired rocket from inside Gaza or a failed uh, rocket that, that failed to launch uh, that caused this explosion. That was what the IDF uh, said happened. And then the, early the next morning, uh, we got a, we, some of us got a call and uh, the head IDF spokesperson, uh, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, uh, had a press conference uh, at the Kiryat uh, Military HQ in Tel Aviv. And so we went there and they, pro- they provided a... a the the investigation in full uh, to the foreign media, and uh, they insisted uh, that there was no Israeli fire at that time in that area, uh, that their radars showed that uh, there was a rocket barrage uh, behind the hospital in a cemetery uh, that went over the hospital uh, at uh, just before the explosion happened, uh, and several other pieces of in you know infirm, information, evidence, intelligence that they put out, you know, intercepted call. Uh, look, you know, we can't verify these claims by the IDF. I'm speaking now as kind of a independent and responsible journalist. But that same morning, which was the next morning, there were images that came out from from the hospital, and it showed very clearly that there was a an explosion in the parking lot. Uh, there were no craters. Uh, which is what the IDF was also saying that, you know, there's no crater impact that would indicate a missile strike from, from uh, an Israeli jet or a drone. Uh, and also that the hospital itself uh, wasn't damaged in terms of the, the structure. So also uh, not so, you know, would indicate that it wasn't uh, a missile strike. Uh, and also there was other, you know, this was an independent image not, not put out by the IDF. This came out from inside Gaza, uh, this, this kind of act, after action picture. Of, of what happened. And you saw, you know, charred cars and the like. Uh, so it looked very much like, like an explosion, but it was a, a you know, fuel explosion, which uh, tracks with what the Israelis were saying, which is that a rocket fired apparently by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a separate militant group, um, 
broke apart in midair, uh, some kind of mechanical failure, the warhead dropped, and because of the propellant inside these rockets, that's what ignited this larger explosion. Um, and then later on, we also uh, got images from uh, various TV channels, not from the IDF, uh, that had cameras pointed at Gaza that you can very clearly see a rocket barrage being launched, uh, and then sh very shortly thereafter, the explosion at uh, or next to the hospital. So uh, everyone uh, very much believes that, you know, he said, she said, sure, that's maybe how you can report it, but it's more than likely that this was a failed rocket launch from inside Gaza, uh, and that, you know, the coverage, the media coverage that we saw was... Uh, was at the very least wrong in terms of the certainty that was put out there that this was definitely an Israeli strike. There was no way for anybody to, to know that, A. B, uh, as any foreign journalist can tell you, reporting from inside Gaza is not like reporting from Israel or any other Western country. It's heavily, heavily monitored. It's heavily restricted. I know this for a fact. Obviously, I can't report from inside Gaza, but I have many friends who have reported from inside Gaza. And while they won't say this publicly because they want to retain access to go in and out of Gaza uh, to be able to report, uh, I know for a fact that uh, it's, it, there are certain things you can report and certain things that you cannot report uh, from inside Gaza. Uh, and that the health ministry, like every other ministry and every other entity within the Gaza Strip, is heavily controlled and coerced by uh, a terrorist organization, Hamas. So at the very least, uh, all these media organizations should have been a bit more careful. And uh, at the very most, they should have uh, walked back and retracted those, uh, those initial reports, which, uh, you know, to get to the bottom line, it fed into a larger snowball uh, of anger, um, very much across the Arab world, uh, in the West Bank, in Jordan, in Turkey, and other places, uh, and also in the West. Uh, where many people, I think, still believe, uh, erroneously, but still believe, uh, that this was uh, th this tr this tragic loss of life uh, next to this hospital was caused by the, an Israeli airstrike. Um, so uh, that's what I have to say about about that incident that I've uh, that I've very much uh, been involved in reporting on uh, for the better part of two days. That was super helpful context for us, Nari. Thank you. Yesterday, um, I mentioned that President and Biden made... by the way, Shani, sure. uh, we should also say that, again, they immediately came out with this number of 500. Now, people did die in that explosion, uh, but according to, you know, the blast circumference and uh, just certain videos and images from right after the blast and then later on, uh, the number of people killed uh, in that, again, very tragic incident uh, was likely not 500. Um, so again, this was, this was a, you know, a, a data point that was put out immediately by Hamas uh, that uh, people should, should take with a, a mountain of salt, especially these days. Thanks for that, Nari. I appreciate the clarification. And I think um, amidst just an enormous amount of misinformation here, someone actually quoted to me yesterday, the first casualty of war is the truth. And it's been very hard to find reliable information when usually reliable media sources are, as you said, reporting out of Gaza, which makes it very complicated and difficult to actually have fact-based reporting. Yeah. And there's also um, no, I mean, there are foreign uh, bureaus up and running inside the Gaza Strip, but it's impossible to get foreign correspondence inside Gaza uh, because of the ongoing war uh, and the fact that uh, Hamas destroyed uh, 
the border crossing uh, on October 7th between Israel and the Gaza Strip, and uh, Egypt still uh, has the southern border crossing, the Rafah crossing, closed between it and Gaza. Uh, so again, uh, it's very difficult to uh, to get accurate reporting um, because of that, and also even if you had foreign journalists inside the Gaza Strip right now, um, it's it, it's not always easy uh, to get access to everywhere you need to go and, and to actually report, uh, what's happening there. Thanks for that. And I just want to name even beyond the hospital, it's been really hard to see the spread of misinformation around this war, um, particularly as it relates to the attack itself coming from Hamas, moving to president Biden, who I believe, or he at least claimed to be the first, uh, U S president to travel to Israel in the middle of a war. Uh, he gave what I thought was another really fantastic speech. It made me very proud to be an American citizen, about the strong U.S.-Israel relationship, about his commitment. And he also had a few, a few very poignant things to say, um, cautioning against letting our justified anger get the better of us in the time of uh, in the time of war when it requires a really long-term, thoughtful approach and military strategy. Um, can you share a little bit more about what were his motives for traveling? Do you think he accomplished them? I mean, it's not a small feat for someone of his age to travel for 12 hours on the ground, if even that. So what was he trying to accomplish? And do you think he managed to do that? So I don't even know if he was on the ground for, for that long. Uh, and it was a remarkable visit uh, yesterday. So, uh, uh, you know, a U.S. president coming to Israel during during wartime. Uh, this is after he sent pretty much all of his senior aides and advisors here, you know, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, multiple times. Uh, and so he apparently felt the need to go personally and to send, number one, a very strong message uh, of solidarity and support to Israel and the Israeli people uh, in this very difficult moment. So in and of itself, that was hugely important. Uh, and the speech that he gave, uh, what did he say? Am Yisrael Chai, uh, the nation of Israel lives. Uh, and he he was very clear that uh, he had Israel's back. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but in of itself, that was a hugely important show of support. Uh, and also, number two, uh, that it's not just rhetorics and symbolism, that he's also backing it up by sending uh, two U.S. Uh, carrier strike groups to the region. Uh, he's got a few thousand Marines on alert. Uh, this is all meant to deter uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and Iran and other various uh, Iranian proxies all across the region from actively getting involved uh, in this uh, Israel-Hamas war. And so I think from Biden's point of view and the admi administration's point of view, uh, they wanted to kind of re-up and make that very clear that this is uh, not just a, say, foreign policy issue for the U.S. president. Uh, it's actually deeply personal uh, and deeply heartfelt. Uh, and so I suppose he, he wanted to come and, and show that uh, directly, again, not only to Israel, but uh, the entire uh, neighborhood, as it were. Uh, and also, I think, number three, he wanted to make it very clear to the Israelis that as they prosecute this, this war, uh, which, which arguably is a just war against a terrorist group that has controlled Gaza and launched a vicious cross-border attack on October 7th, that they do this uh, according to international law uh, and to the extent possible uh, to avoid a humanitarian catastrophe inside Gaza. And so I think he wanted to make that very clear to the Israeli war cabinet. And uh, right before he left or right after he left, we got word that Israel uh, is going to be allowing uh, 
humanitarian aid convoys uh, into Gaza. And uh, I think that that's all for the good. That's all for the good. And I think that's also uh, a point of emphasis for, for the U.S. and all this uh, as they support uh, the Israeli war effort, uh, by the way, also uh, arms and weapons shipments arriving daily, uh, likely Iron Dome interceptors, which is very important uh, that Israel do this uh, responsibly and legally and to the extent possible uh, in a, in a um, restrained manner that spares uh, the innocent people in Gaza um, you know, undue, undue suffering and bloodshed um, under the rule of, uh, of a very, very vicious uh, terrorist organization. So I suppose that's, that's what Biden uh, uh, wanted to achieve uh, with this, again, remarkable visit. Uh, we should also mention uh, yesterday in Tel Aviv, so I was uh, zipping around on a scooter because that's even in usual times, that's the only way to get around Tel Aviv. Uh, so I was in the Kiria and then uh, in other places, the the amount of people on the streets of Tel Aviv, uh, the most since October 7th. Uh, and that's because everybody understood here in Israel that not even Hamas was stupid enough to fire on Tel Aviv while the U.S. president is on the ground. And so uh, I was joking with people, but the, the best Iron Dome Israel has is actually uh, Joe <laughs> Biden being on the ground. Uh, and then, you know, I was like, I told someone, you know, Joe Biden should just make Aliyah and, and you know, the problem problem solved. Uh, but I'm, I'm only kidding. That's very funny. Um, we, we do know as well that the American people not only broadly uh, support Israel and have empathy for the Israeli people in this conflict, but also even support the U.S. supporting Israel, which is is not something to be taken for granted. Um, my understanding is that in other um, in other countries across Europe, that is also the sentiment. That said, of course, we are seeing um, really massive protests and rallies, not just on campuses, but across quite a few cities against um, the Israeli uh, war with Gaza, with Hamas right now, right? Um, so I want to move actually away from that, though, and into Arab capitals. So we're seeing, um, obviously, we have much more toned down language coming from the governments themselves, which, yes, are calling for de-escalation, but um, they did, many of them did put out remarks at the beginning um, calling out Hamas for their brutal massacres. Um, but we are seeing the streets really filled with protesters coming out of um, Amman and Jordan and, and Morocco and Egypt and a variety of other countries. And the West Bank. So, and, well, we'll get to the West Bank, don't worry. That's its own question. <laughs> um, but in terms of the the embassies there, I mean, some of these countries like Morocco have normalized with Israel. Is there going to be pressure? Uh, I mean, surely there's pressure to roll that back. Are they going to be susceptible to such pressure? And I'll also add that, as we said earlier, um, despite the fact that there has been a tremendous amount of evidence to the contrary, it seems that all of the people on the ground in these countries are still very convinced that Israel bombed this hospital in Gaza and that it killed 500 people. And so it doesn't really matter what's coming out to the contrary. That's still a sentiment on the ground. So what's happening? Um, and I know I can't paint with a broad brush because, of course, Jordan and Egypt are very different um, compared to Morocco or Gulf countries. Um, but if you could share what you're seeing and hearing. So, yes, uh, the level of anger and the public demonstrations that we've seen um, all across the Arab world and, and also in certain places in Europe. Um, it's, I don't know if surprising is the right word, but it is, I don't even know if remarkable is the right word, but it, 
it does show you, I think, number one, the the influence and power and staying power of the Palestinian issue um, across the the Arab world, at least amongst the publics. And so if you remember, Shani, a few weeks ago, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was at the UN and he pulled out a map and, you know, was declaring a, a new Middle East and uh, the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict. That That is definitely not the case. Uh, and we're seeing that firsthand right now. Uh, and I think all of us at Israel Policy Forum understood uh, even before uh, October 7th and, and this Gaza war uh, that the Palestinian issue was, was critically important in, in and of itself as a standalone issue, but also for, for Israel, uh, but also for the rest of the Arab world. Uh, and so people who seem to discount that and say, well, uh, they don't really care about the Palestinians anymore and uh, we can kind of just ignore it and eventually everyone will will just accept uh, our diktat, you know, in terms of, you know, the contours of the West Bank and uh, what Israel, Israeli policy vis-a-vis uh, the Palestinians will be, uh, that's been proven to be not the case. So I, that's on one side of the ledger. On the other side of the ledger, uh, I think we're seeing a, a level of spinelessness. And it's unfortunate, but it, it is... Uh, kind of weakness on the part of many of these Arab leaders uh, that they're kind of being dragged by public sentiment and uh, essentially by, by Hamas's actions, right? Hamas is dictating uh, the public mood all across the Arab world. Uh, and you're not seeing Arab leaders get up and say, look, um, we may not like uh, the Israeli bombing campaign inside Gaza, uh, but we also very much condemn what this vicious... Uh, Islamist terror group did in southern Israel on October 7th um, and that uh, you know the, the the burden of responsibility cannot just be on Israel in terms of its uh, retaliation against Hamas and Gaza uh, but we're seeing very little of that in terms of uh, the public rhetoric from uh, from these Arab leaders uh, and I suppose they're just uh, they're scared for their own their own position uh, in, in their various countries um, and and so, you know, while I understand it maybe analytically, uh, it is quite unfortunate that they're not leading and being dragged uh, according to the public whims of, uh, and the military whims of, of Hamas and, and Hezbollah and Iran. Uh, that, that in and of itself is, it, I, I don't remember anything quite like it. And if we think back, you know, I'm old enough to remember the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah. Uh, many of the Gulf countries came out in support of Israel back then, publicly. Uh, and that's very much not the case uh, right now. Uh, and also, if we're already on the topic of kind of public sentiment and mood and, uh, you know, and the like, uh, one of the uh, quote unquote advantages of uh, working, you know, 20 hour days for almost two straight weeks is that I spend a lot less time on social media than I used to. Uh, but when I do check in, uh, I see, you know, it could be certain people that I, I, I follow on social media or just, you know, public social media posts, it, you know, the level of, of kind of, um, I don't even know what the word is, but the level of uh, the outcry and the, the blame and anger towards Israel for launching, you know, a military campaign to try to eliminate a very real security threat uh, to its own people that we saw on October 7th, you know, it, it's not even now two weeks ago. Uh, yes, it matters how Israel prosecutes this war. Yes, 100%. Uh, 
Uh, but the fact that all these people, whether government, you know, leaders in government uh, in various countries or even just individuals, uh, fail to fail to understand what's happening um, in terms of Israel-Gaza relations as it relates to to Hamas ruling Gaza is is just is just mind-boggling. Um, and these people, by the way, uh, you know, they couldn't tell you the difference between uh, Yahya Sinwar and Ismail Haniya. These people were dealing with, you know, everything else but Israel-Gaza policy on October 6th. And now all of a sudden they wake up and, and have their own opinions about what Israel should or should not do vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, a Hamas-ruled Gaza. And so for some of us who have been dealing with this issue very closely for years, if not many years, uh, it's, uh, it, it's just, uh, hold on one second, pick up three, two, one. It's, uh, it's a bit depressing. Uh, and these people should, I don't even say no better, but they should maybe try to learn a bit more about what Israel uh, has and has not done vis-a-vis -vis Gaza going back 30 years. But obviously, you know, we're living in a world where uh, they see images or something on TikTok or Twitter or Facebook, and they make up their minds that Israel is committing, well, whatever it's committing in, in the Gaza Strip, um, which, is, which is not the case. Um, and yes, we can have full empathy and should have full empathy for, for the innocent people in Gaza, 100%. Uh, but people also need to realize that there's a context and backstory uh, going back years, if not decades, to Israel-Gaza policy and the relationship. Uh, and that you can't just wake up on, I don't even say October 7th, right? Because on October 7th, everyone, you know, had a lot of sympathy for Israel. But let's say, you know, wake up on October 19th, uh, which is today when we're recording, and have, you know, their own opinions about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, that they just came up with, you know, the night before. As a result of all of, all of what you just named, we are seeing not just across the Middle East, of course, but also in Europe, massive, massive rallies. Um, I believe a synagogue in Berlin was firebombed, um, about almost 200 arrests during uh, massive protests from pro-Palestinian activists with many police officers injured, just really things coming uh, head to head in countries very, very far away from Israel and Gaza. Um, and yet we're still seeing that. I heard of bomb threats to the U.S. and Israeli embassies in Buenos Aires. So I just want to name that um, kind of nowhere in the world is being untouched by this um, damage to a synagogue in Tunisia, a really old synagogue, which is also very sad. So just think that all needs to be said. Yeah. And you know what it is, right? It's scale of obviously the Israeli response to October 7th, uh, also probably a reaction to Israel's intent to actually go in uh, on the ground and, and try to dismantle Hamas as a as a military entity, if not a governing entity in, inside the Gaza Strip. So I think it's a reaction to, uh, to that. Uh, and I think it's also a reaction, again, my opinion, but it's certain cognitive dissonance uh, for many people who believe themselves to be uh, for the Palestinian cause, which, by the way, uh, I am as well, and, and I think many people are as well. Uh, they can't wrap their heads around the fact that these quote-unquote freedom fighters or resistance fighters or whatever they want to call it from Hamas uh, poured across the border of a territory that Israel withdrew from, both settlers and army, in 2005, and 18 years later, this is the result. So all the people 
demanding, rightfully so, that Israel end the occupation, and again, I think we're all for that, uh, they can't quite, I think, emotionally and also ideologically wrap their heads around the problem of a Hamas-ruled Gaza and what, what it's come to, uh, which we saw on October 7th. So I think a lot of people, this is their natural reaction, and they're lashing out, uh, again, like you said, not just at Israel, but, but against uh, Jewish institutions and people all over the world uh, because uh, they don't quite know how to grapple with the facts. And the facts are, I think we mentioned this last week on the podcast, you know, Gaza should have been, should have been something very different. The Palestinian Authority, like we talked about, it was Gaza and Jericho first. Yasser Arafat, uh, when he came back uh, to the Palestinian territories, uh, drove across the border from Egypt into Gaza. Uh, Israel withdrew in 2005 from the entire Gaza Strip. And in 2007, Hamas took over in a six-day coup, a violent coup, and kicked out the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah Party. And so since 2007, up until now, you've had this essentially terrorist statelet, Hamastan. Uh, and again, Israel initially tried to, and very much did, blockade the Strip because it didn't want to give any quarter to a terrorist group that refused to renounce violence and refused to recognize Israel and refused to abide by prior Israeli-Palestinian agreements. I think not unreasonable conditions by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and so to, to kind of erode the blockade and force Israel to uh, make, make uh, concessions, they started firing rockets uh, and through what had been I would argue a, a calibrated use of force over successive years, you know, all these various rounds between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, we've, we've all, we all remember them. We all know them. Uh, Israel actually starting in 2014 uh, and also after the 2021 campaign started very much easing the blockade. It worked. It worked. And also, you know, there were very real humanitarian reasons uh, inside Gaza to, to ease the blockade. Uh, and so, you know, things that had been unimaginable, uh, say in 2008, 9, 10, and so on, uh, became real. Uh, 20,000 Gazan workers, uh, almost 20,000, had been coming into Israel every day or had been allowed to work into receive work permits in Israel every day uh, on October 6th. That, that was not the case uh, after Hamas took over the Strip. Uh, the movement of, uh, of goods into and out of the Strip was at its highest point ever. Uh, the fact that Israel uh, acquiesced and allowed suitcases of cash from Qatar to go into the Gaza Strip to pay Hamas directly, essentially to keep the quiet. Uh, you know, as one Israeli official told me in early 2014, when the UN first floated this idea, it's like, what are they, crazy? They want to pay a terrorist organization? And then after the 2014 war, uh, I have to say, I was the first to report this, uh, that the UN envoy at the time, with, again, Israeli approval, brokered uh, the arrangement where you had uh, a Brinks truck full of Qatari dollars being driven across the Allenby Bridge, across Israel, and into Gaza directly. And then, you know, uh, subsequently it turned into a different mechanism, whatever, but the point was the same, that essentially they were paying Hamas directly. Um, and the fact that people talk about the blockade of Gaza, but they had a, a fully operational and functional border crossing with Egypt for years, the Salahuddin Gate, uh, just to the north of the Rafah crossing. Again, I was one of the first to report on that. 
so they were moving all kinds of things in and out, uh, including, by the way, the tunnels underneath uh, the Gaza-Egyptian frontier. All kinds of things, everything they wanted was moving in and out of the Gaza Strip, by the way, including weapons, uh, as, we, as we very much know. So again, all these things that people believe they understand about Israel-Gaza relations um, is just not accurate, and anyone that actually follows this issue very closely uh, knows that. Uh, and also, talking about cognitive dissonance, a lot of people, um, well-meaning people, uh, wanted to, to ease restrictions uh, over Gaza because the idea was, the paradigm was, that uh, you give Hamas more money and more uh, economic and financial inducements, and they'll be the responsible sovereign uh, over the Gaza Strip. That was the paradigm. That was Israeli policy over successive governments, uh, primarily Netanyahu governments, but not only. Uh, and that blew up in the worst way possible. I think we mentioned this last week on October 7th. So again, in terms of solutions for a Gaza ruled by Hamas, uh, everything was pretty much tried. Everything was pretty much tried. You know, full blockade followed by, you know, uh, inducements and easing measures uh, right up until October 6th. And all these people protesting on the streets of wherever need to ask themselves the question, you know, if if everything was just open and unrestricted into and out of Gaza, uh, what would Hamas's military capabilities be right now? Um, and they're already very formidable. After every round, uh, this group has improved. Um, so again, people need to ask themselves very hard, both personal and policy questions when they're weighing in on an issue as difficult as uh, the Gaza Strip ruled by uh, a vicious terrorist organization like Hamas. Certainly. And thinking back on or forward to the day after Hamas, we discussed this a little bit um, on our last podcast, but I was very surprised to see this morning that Yair Lapid uh, posted or said publicly that the best day after option is that Gaza goes under the Palestinian Authority. I was very surprised to see this. I can only assume it is because he read Michael Koplow's Koplow column this week, which was called Three Problems to Think About for the Day After. And of course, it outlined several somewhat realistic and also terrible options uh, for what Gaza can become or under whose leadership it will be. And of course, the best of all these bad options is to return to the Palestinian Authority, however challenging that may be, however many obstacles there are. And of course, there are very many. Um, so I just want to um, hear if you have any thoughts on that. Um, but I also want to turn to uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, and, and what is going on with him these days. How is he reigning in, of course, his security forces? We're hearing about a lot of clashes between the Palestinian Authority security forces and Palestinians who are, of course, now protesting both violently and not violently in the West Bank. Of course, we know that there are a tremendous amount of Jewish people living in the West Bank with amongst um, or between Palestinian cities. So I'm wondering about their safety and, of course, the possibility of, and we've already seen some revenge attacks against Palestinians. So um, what's happening in the West Bank and what is the Palestinian Authority's role in all of that? Have they been meeting this moment in a way that makes them a longtime partner in your eyes? Well, I think those are two separate and distinct questions, uh, but well-taken questions. So number one, in terms of what Gaza may or may not look like after whatever Israeli ground offensive is being planned, um, nobody nobody knows. I'm not even quite certain the war cabinet here in Israel knows. Uh, 
my editors don't really like that answer, uh, but I think it's the only honest one. So, and we've heard uh, Netanyahu's national security advisor, Tzachi Negbi, basically admit publicly in a press conference a few days ago that uh, we don't know what will be in Gaza the day after, but we definitely know what won't be there the day after. And he was meeting Hamas, Hamas rule. Uh, so there are various kind of ideas being floated around and, and people thinking through, but to my to my mind, um, the Palestinian Authority can't just ride back into Gaza on the back of a Israeli tank. Uh, that 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 is not tenable uh, politically for anybody. Uh, so I think the best case scenario may be, uh, you know, a UN role, Arab League role, Gulf role, with some kind of Palestinian Authority component tied into that. Um, but nobody really knows uh, how that would work, if that would work, and the like. Again, uh, the Gaza issue is, is like we were talking about earlier, very, very, very difficult. Um, and like I said, many different things have been tried, uh, and they all uh, collapsed spe- spectacularly and tragically on October 7th. So that's, uh, that's the first question. The second question, uh, the West Bank is a huge concern, a huge concern. Um, it, you know, it's not being reported as much because all of the focus is either on Gaza or a potential Northern front. Uh, but the, the West Bank has not been, has not been calm. I mean, you know, all things are relative these days. Uh, so several dozen Palestinians have been killed in clashes either with the Israeli military or like you were alluding to, uh, wholly irresponsible extremist settlers uh, going and taking revenge attacks uh, against Palestinians uh, in, in the West Bank. So it's a huge concern. And like you said, uh, the other night we started seeing um, not mass protests, but significant protests on the streets of various Palestinian cities in the West Bank uh, uh, against Israel's uh, strike against this hospital, uh, like we were talking about earlier. Uh, and also, by the way, directly chanting against President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, so it's all, it's all concerning. And for now, I, would sh- I should say that the Palestinian Authority is, is trying to contain it. It's trying to contain it. The Palestinian security forces are uh, still trying to, to maintain control, disperse these crowds to the extent possible. I think even they have used live fire uh, in the West Bank. So I think tomorrow, which is Friday, uh, depending on when this podcast comes out, uh, will be a huge test. Uh, Friday prayers and the like in the West Bank and also in Jerusalem. So my hope is that uh, the West Bank stays relatively calm uh, and what we're seeing you know, unfold in, in southern Israel and in Gaza doesn't, uh, doesn't escalate to, to other places. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a huge concern. Uh, but f- for now, um, you know, it's not as bad as it could be, I suppose, is, is kind of the silver lining. Absolutely. In terms of the, um, you actually wrote this week in the Financial Times a piece about the the many Israelis who are living in kibbutzim along the Gaza border who have now been evacuated. So, if there's anything you want to share about what they're experiencing, obviously being displaced, um, you also wrote that as long as Hamas is in power, they are unlikely to feel comfortable and safe returning to those communities. Of course, we have many friends. Um, in those communities, which are filled with, you know, secular lefty kibbutznikim, largely, um, who are who are very much in our um, in our communities as well, um, and and you also wrote that they're very aware that there are people living in Gaza who are also suffering, which I think is um, is really interesting to be able to hold that empathy 
while your own family is being attacked and displaced. Yeah, it was a very powerful day that I spent uh, with one of my colleagues uh, in in Shfaim. This is a kibbutz uh, just north of Herzliya, which uh, a lot of the, uh, the the residents of Kfar Aza down near the Gaza border have been uh, relocated to after after the massacre uh, that took place in their community. So we went to uh, to speak with them. We went to see them, and I should say right off the bat that. Uh, it was the most, I don't want to say hopeful day I've had over the past two weeks, but it was remarkable to see these people still walking around, functioning, helping each other. Uh, they're getting a lot of you know visitors, uh, relatives, and friends that are coming to, to visit them. And some of them have undergone unspeakable, unspeakable horrors. Uh, we were interviewing a couple a young couple with a, a one-year-old baby, um, and her parents were uh, were killed, were executed uh, during the Hamas attack, and they were standing there, uh, you know, speaking to to journalists. Uh, I sat down with uh, with a woman, you know, she's a seventy-year-old grandmother, and initially you approach these people, and you don't want to you don't want to press too much, right? Because they've they've gone through something unspeakable. So you're very delicately probe and you tell them, Hey, you know, uh, tell me whatever you're comfortable telling you, uh, telling me rather. And this woman, uh, Batia sat down with me for over 30 minutes and laid out in detail one step after another, what she and her family experienced, uh, not only by the way on October 7th, it lasted into the next day. And I believe into the next day, uh, and, and mercifully her and her entire family were, uh, were saved. So she was one of the lucky ones. Uh, almost a hundred of her neighbors were, were not so lucky, not so lucky, either killed or, or taken captive back into Gaza. But as I was sitting there with her, uh, it was almost like, and I've had this experience with, you know, my, my grandmother and, uh, my great aunt when you're sitting with them, uh, and as it often was, uh, you know, their experiences going through the Holocaust. And they're sitting there giving you details, almost kind of matter-of-factly. Uh, and you yourself can't, can't believe it. You don't really know what to say in response. Uh, and they're sharing all this information, all, this, all these details with you, because they want the world to know, right? They want the world to know what happened. And they want the world to, to never forget what happened. And so you're sitting there, and, and I, I couldn't believe it. And they actually uh, uplifted me. Uh, during the several hours that, uh, that we spent with them. And, uh, you know, obviously they're, they're still uh, very much uh, in shock, in trauma, uh, probably very heavily medicated just to, to make it through the day. Uh, one of them, when we pointed out, you know, how are you people walking around, still functioning? He said, well, you know, there are a lot of little, little kids walking around. You know, we have to take care of them. Uh, and also, you know, we're, you know, you're seeing kind of the outward the outward shell uh, inside uh, we're going through a lot uh, so they they actually um, they actually lifted my spirits uh, and and they they spent a lot of uh, a lot of hours uh, very graciously uh, sharing sharing what happened uh, with us and, and we published that and uh, and yes uh, you know to the actual uh, kind of initial point uh, many of them said they're not willing to go back and live in southern Israel. Uh, if there's still the threat of a Hamas attack emanating from Gaza uh, 
at the back end of, of this war. And so it's now become both in southern Israel and I'd argue in certain respect in northern Israel, uh, a question of, of Israeli sovereignty, whether the Israeli state can actually protect its citizens and and allow them to live uh, in these border border regions, uh, given given what happened on October 7th. Uh, so that's also in terms of just kind of Israeli policy and Israeli strategy uh, and let alone the public mood, uh, you know, it. it the threat, one way or another, at least from the Israeli point of view, uh, has to be neutralized. Absolutely, and I will. I will also ask you um, about the the aid situation in Gaza, the humanitarian aid, because I know there's been a lot of back and forth about what Israel can or is willing to do, um, being pushed by the U.S. of course, and we know that the United States is planning to send uh, aid to Gaza as well, recognizing that while this military operation is widely perceived certainly by Israelis, but Americans around the world as being just and necessary. It will also impact the lives of many people who are, of course, just bystanders held hostage by their own terrorist regime in Gaza. And so what is aid going to look like to them? And and frankly, what are the calculations that have to be made to decide if aid enters Gaza, given that there is also an ongoing military operation that's meant to be targeting terrorists, which is, of course, necessary as well? So... The details are still sketchy about how this is supposed to work, but to the best of my understanding, um, Israel will begin allowing uh, humanitarian aid convoys to move from Egypt into Gaza, uh, and that it will be directed to a specific uh, humanitarian safe zone uh, being established in southern Gaza in uh, western Khan Yunus. Uh, that's just according to the to the Israeli uh, officials that I've spoken to. And so... I think that's that's a result of of Biden and, and U.S. kind of pressure and prodding of Israel, and and I'd argue, you know, it's it's hugely important. It's hugely important uh, because we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that uh, uh, there are innocent civilians inside Gaza uh, suffering greatly uh, from what Hamas inflicted on them. You know, those people also went to bed on October sixth. Uh, you know, living I don't want to say kind of normal lives because Gaza itself was. Uh, was very difficult, but they weren't uh, they weren't experiencing what they've been experiencing now over the past two weeks, um, and that was a that was a decision a strategic decision by Hamas, by their overlords. Right, Israel didn't force Hamas to send thousands of uh, fighters and terrorists across the border to slaughter uh, women, children, and babies. So uh, Hamas uh, brought this. Uh, on its own people as well. And, and again, when people talk about, uh, you know, uh, cause and effect, they should also uh, be very mindful of that. Um, so hopefully there are efforts underway and that will be realized to ease the humanitarian situation inside Gaza. Um, I think, like I said, uh, that's, that's a hugely important uh, objective uh, in all this. And, and, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of, of that either. Thank you for that, Mary. That's that's all for me. But I do want us to end recognizing that, unfortunately, the Jewish people have actually been through worse, even uh, in the lifetimes of some of the very elderly who are now living this nightmare again. And we're quite quite resilient. And we're hearing a lot of really beautiful stories coming out of Israel um, from families coming together, strangers taking each other in. Um, of course, Arab Israelis also joining the cause. So there is also a lot of um, beautiful stories coming out of this that certainly give me hope, um, even in this terribly distressing time. 
Thank you for your time there. If there's anything you want to add before we wrap up, please. No, I wanted to thank you, Shani, uh, for again, interviewing me. Uh, like I said, it, it saves me, uh, the, the process of kind of putting together kind of questions and answers. Uh, so, uh, you know, hopefully we can, we can keep this, uh, wartime emergency podcast format going. Um, and yes, like you, like you mentioned, uh, amid, amid this very, very difficult time, uh, Israelis are banding together, uh, and uniting and you hear, you know, story after story of whether it's a, a cafe sending, you know, coffee to the troops or to hospitals for, for the staff or, um, you know, people donating money uh, or people taking uh, displaced people from the north or south into their homes uh, or paying for hotel rooms uh, and on and on and on. Uh, the unity being exhibited is, is quite important uh, and vital. Uh, and like I said, uh, if if those people uh, from southern Israel that, that I talked to earlier this week um, are still are still hopeful uh, of of something hopefully more positive coming out uh, from from this very difficult time. Uh, then we should all uh, remain hopeful as well, and uh, and keep that keep that in our hearts. So uh, uh, let's hope uh, let's hope for the best. Thanks, Nari. Shabbat shalom to all our listeners. Bye, Shani. On October 7th, 2023, Israelis faced the unthinkable when Hamas militants breached the Gaza border, carried out a violent rampage, took hundreds of Israelis and other foreign citizens hostage, and indiscriminately slaughtered at least 1,400 people, mostly civilians, many of them women, children, and elderly. This conflict has upended Israeli society and exacerbated an already dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip where thousands of Palestinians have already been killed by Israeli airstrikes and misfired rockets launched by militants. As Israelis and Palestinians gird themselves for the war ahead, and we all process the traumatic events of the past two weeks, Israel Policy Forum experts have been providing timely, clear-headed, and sober analysis on the ongoing conflict. In this week's Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau outlined three key issues that Israeli leaders should grapple with as they prepare to destroy Hamas in Gaza. Writing in The Messenger, Michael outlined the implications of self-identified progressives abandoning American Jews in the wake of October 7th. In The Christian Science Monitor, Israel Policy Pod host Neri Zilber unpacked the uncertainty surrounding how Israel plans on achieving its aims in Gaza. On this week's Israel Policy Pause, I, Senior Policy and Communications Associate Alex Lederman, recap President Biden's emergency visit to Israel this week. On this week's Israel Policy Briefing, we heard from Haaretz military correspondent Amos Harel on the latest developments on the ground and Israel's strategic challenges. For all of our resources on the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, including a timeline of events from 1949 until now, explore our new Israel at War webpage. Links to all of these resources can be found in the show notes of this podcast. For more analysis, visit israelpolicyforum.org.